Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. afternoon everybody and welcome to the resistance recovery podcast i am really excited to have my friend brett green with us today brett is the chief innovation officer of cybin and he'll tell us a little bit more about that and actually why don't we start with that brett how about a little bit about yourself and your job sure uh well first of all thanks for having me here um, it's uh, really exciting uh, to follow up uh, a, a really thrilling conversation that we had, uh, I want to say, was it a month ago now? Yeah, about. About a month ago. Um, my background is in uh, drug discovery and uh, psychedelic activism. And uh, this year I found it, or I should say last year, right? It's 20, 2021 now. So in April of 2020, I founded a company called Adelia Therapeutics, which is a psychedelic drug discovery platform company. And Adelia Therapeutics um, brought together uh, my founder, who uh, was an experienced is an experienced formulation chemist, and uh, a lot of folks that I knew from the uh, drug discovery world, as well as a few that I uh, met as a uh, psychedelic activist going on, I don't know, about 15 years. And uh, that company, Adelia Therapeutics, was recently acquired by Cybin. Um, the, uh, the amount is public, but I'm, I'm not going to say it right now. <laughs> right here, if people are interested, they can check out the, the, the press release. Um, and uh, prior to the uh, founding and acquisition of Adelia, I worked in drug discovery for the Center for Drug Discovery at Northeastern for uh, about 12 and a half years, um, managing uh, research administration, which is uh, sort of a catch-all for grants and purchasing and lab management, uh, hiring, firing, um, just general administration and uh, grant research management uh, around cannabinoids and um, psychedelics as well. I, I shouldn't say psychedelics, uh, serotonergic, uh, um, novel medication development. So we, we received about $80 million over the course of, uh, my tenure there and, uh, federal grants to study, uh, cannabinoids, the endocannabinoid system, uh, addiction, um, uh, uh, you know, indications like obesity and and how they relate to the endocannabinoid world as well as uh, uh, serotonergic uh, uh, medicine. Uh, so um, Alex Macrianis, who's one of the world's leading cannabinoid scientists was the director, is the director of the center. And then Ray Booth um, is the uh, deputy director and he uh, runs his own um, uh, drug discovery lab around serotonin. So Macrianis does the cannabinoids uh, Booth does the uh, serotonin work. And uh, in my tenure at the Center for Drug Discovery, it was just a really amazing opportunity to uh, ask many, many questions of the really brilliant minds that were around me, uh, you know, with respect to cannabinoids. And it was an interdisciplinary uh, center in the, in the respect that we had a chemistry lab, a biophysics lab, a behavioral pharmacology lab and a synthetic chemistry lab all working together to, you know, solve uh, um, uh, questions and, you know, problems around uh, psychedelic drug development. And uh, I'm sorry, uh, around cannabinoid drug development and, uh, you know, to some extent, uh, development of serotonergic uh, compounds in the case of Ray Booth's lab. Um, while I was there, I also founded uh, Symposia, which is a 
media company that started in, I want to say, 2013 or 2014. And uh, for quite a while, I was uh, uh, essentially volunteering a lot of my time putting events on around the world about psychedelics, um, publishing about psychedelics and, and the drug war, and um, uh, just uh, doing whatever I could to raise awareness and education around uh, these the potential for psychedelic medicine and the psychedelic science endeavors that were happening at the time. So uh, Adelia was really a way to bring together my, my two hats of uh, interest in psychedelics, as well as my background in, in drug discovery and drug development. Fascinating. And what led you down this path initially? <clears throat> well, um, is going back to probably when I was, I don't know, maybe 12, 11 or 12, uh, I became really interested in uh, altered states of consciousness, probably even before that. Uh, I remember, you know, I would uh, blink really quickly and uh, <laughs> be very interested in, in the visual, uh, uh, you know, st uh, artifacts that were in front of my eyes, uh, you know, the seeing stars and all of that. And I like to um, spin around and then try to kind of become conscious in the spinning uh, as, as a way to, you know, really investigate the altered consciousness of, of spinning around. So for a long time, I was very interested, you know, going back a long ways, I was very interested in um, uh, altered states of consciousness. Uh, when I got to be around 12 or or 13, I, I discovered cannabis. And um, I also was experimenting with alcohol. Uh, but, you know, doing so from sort of a, a pretty, I, I would say, uh, uh, for my age, a kind of a scientific uh, type of uh, uh, perspective. And, um, you know, shortly thereafter, experimenting with cannabis, and uh, to some extent, alcohol, uh, I started to uh, uh, first read about psychedelics from the likes of uh, Timothy Leary and Ram Dass. And, uh, you know, so I, before I ever got into psychedelics, personally, I was, I was reading about them. And uh, I remember, you know, telling my fellow middle school class about, about Timothy Leary. And I was a weird kid. So, uh, you know, I, I would... Uh, I would go on, on online and, you know, I think most people at that point, you know, were uh, most people in my age group were, um, you know, doing things like, uh, you know, going on Napster and, um, you know, playing, playing video games and, and whatnot. And I was, I was on Arrowwood, you know, uh, learning about these drugs and reading experience reports. You know, fr from there, I, I mean, I, started to experiment, I would say, uh, I think I had my first LSD, what I thought was LSD trip in, uh, I don't know, probably age 15 or 16. And uh, it was actually 2CB most likely because they, it had a flying condom on the, on the blotter paper. <laughs> and um, I had, uh, uh, you know, received the, the, this, this, uh, this hit and um, I had a couple more that I was gonna, you know, maybe give to friends the, the next day at school. And uh, so uh, that night I said, all right, I'll just try a little piece of this. And, you know, just uh, let me, you know, so at, at five o'clock or whatever, I took, you know, a, a, what I thought was a microdose. And uh, yeah, it, it wasn't quite a microdose. It was, uh, it was pretty powerful. And so, Instead of, uh, you know, you know, just seeing if it was real, I had a massive trip that uh, lasted all night and um, was incredibly profound, but wasn't wasn't probably the best idea, you know, on a school night. So <laughs> from there, uh, I uh, ended up staying up all night and trying to get to bed at, at three in the morning. I remember I, I downed a whole bunch of vodka. And uh, I couldn't uh, feel it. It was like, you know, it had no effect on me. 
so, um, you know, from, from there, uh, you know, I, I, I went to school and I felt fine. And, uh, I just thought, wow, this, this is, this is unusual. This is, uh, this is really special. And of course I had a lot of insight from that experience, uh, into myself. So that started my, my personal experimentation, which, uh, I would say became, you know, more and more, uh, introspective and, uh, purposeful. Um, so I would say what got me into it was, uh, geez, it was, uh, just a fascination with, um, being able to alter one's consciousness in a very pointed and, and purposeful way for the sake of, uh, in, you know, self-improvement and, um, self-development. So was this, a uh the trajectory of your in interest was it pretty consistent and pretty um i don't know it just unfolded organically or were there ups and downs and leaving it and coming back to it and did your overall i don't know you know in my own experience it went from something very fun and recreational to something that eventually i had through some negative experience a tremendous amount of respect for um, changed my whole orientation towards it. Something like that comparable? Well, uh, I, I gotta say that for me, it was never recreational. Um, some people, and I, I, I'm somewhat envious of this, but some people seem to be able to take psychedelics and, and go out and party. Like I, I could never do that. <laughs> um, for, for me, uh, it just exploded my inner world and it uh, really shined a light on things in my unconscious. And that became the allure, the appeal. So to me, the appeal was, was about, um, I, I guess you might even say the occult uh, in terms of like the occult meaning, meaning things that are hidden. Yeah. So that, that would be hidden material for myself personally, as well as, you know, about the nature of reality. And uh, I wasn't just reading Timothy Leary. I, I was also, you know, reading every philosophy book that I could get my hands on. I was studying Taoism and Buddhism. And uh, so I, I felt that um, my interest in, uh, you know, Taoism, Buddhism, uh, you know, Kabbalah, esotericism, uh, it, it really was uh, uh, crystallized in these experiences. So the same interest that led me to be a weird kid that was kind of studying consciousness and uh, idolizing the 60s for, you know, its effect on you know, liberating people from uh, the oppressive ideologies of the 50s was uh what was really piquing my interest and driving me to experiment so yeah i i can't say that i ever had the um quote-unquote recreational drug experience i was also a writer and a you know a poet and uh, a musician so um i was obsessed you know i started writing poetry when i was i don't know five or six and uh it would be these very existential poems <laughs> and you know my my parents didn't quite know what to do um uh, because i think well a lot of kids wanted to you know play play with doll i mean i played with uh nintendo for sure but um yeah i was writing uh existential poetry at, at an early age and so for me the um experimenting with psychedelics was was really uh either a tool for that introspection or um, a, a way to uh, help with the writing and to uh, provide me with, I don't know, motivation slash inspiration slash um, another perspective that could make the writing more interesting. And that's, that's really how I saw it. And I was a hyperactive kid too. And uh, I was prescribed Ritalin very early on. And uh, I feel like the Ritalin was sort of the gateway drug in a lot of ways, in, in, a, in a kind of a negative way, because um, Ritalin for me was, um, you know, it helped me focus for sure, but it also made me very cold and, and unemotional. And the uh, 
I, I, I discovered psychedelics, of course, when I was, was older in my younger teenage years. But once I did, I started to microdose with psychedelics and I noticed that it helped me focus better and it helped me focus without a lot of that um, kind of coldness. So it, it became sort of a, a tool of both uh, the utility of helping me to focus and, and to do work, uh, as well as an aid to help with my introspection and um, self-discovery. Uh, so, you know, Ritalin for me, uh, it, it sort of gave me permission to start experimenting with drugs in, in a sense, because I already thought that I was, you know, I, drugs were already part of my day-to-day -day life and they were already sanctioned by my parents and by the schools. And uh, so uh, taking, taking Ritalin every day, um, it, it, you know, it, it already uh, cemented that I wasn't going to have a drug-free, <laughs> I wasn't going to be a dare poster child. And so that gave me permission to experiment with other things that ended up being a lot better than the, uh, than the Ritalin for me. And how young were you when you were put on the Ritalin? Uh, I think I was about eight, eight or nine. Did and you... I stayed on through college. And, and then in my, in my first year of college, actually, uh, I had, I suffered some serious depression. And then from there, um, the year out of high school, I mean, out of college, I was hospitalized for, for suicidal ideation. And, um, I was diagnosed with bipolar and, uh, that's when actually coming out of the, uh, hospital, my interest in psychedelics really became, um, uh, sort of a lifesaver because, uh, from the medication regimen that I was uh, prescribed in the hospital, I came out, went cold turkey on those medications, and then uh, sort of rediscovered my my passion and love for psychedelics. And uh, ended up first, I went to a shaman uh, to to help me without drugs. Um, but before I did, I had ordered all of the uh, plants necessary to make ayahuasca. And then after I had this amazing experience with a shaman, you know, sans drugs at all, sans drugs, I uh, went to uh, ayahuasca retreat that she had recommended, which was um, really a turning point in my life. And after I took ayahuasca there, um, I, I, never, I didn't have any more problems with uh, uh, depression and um, the types of issues that I had had that led into uh, going into the hospital. So I think that the Ritalin definitely had something to do with, um, you know, that um, early 20s diagnosis of uh, bipolar was that uh, I don't think was was actually, uh, you know, relevant. I, I think it actually had to do with the Ritalin, as I said. Yeah, it's very common for people to go from stimulants to antidepressants to mood stabilizers. Um, as you know. Um, so had you any interest in psychedelics for their therapeutic value prior to that? Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. But um, it was really more of a, I would say, um, you know, an academic uh, and spiritual exercise. It was less pointed around, um, uh, it was less directed towards solving an issue. And I, I say that the ayahuasca experience was a turning point because that's really when um, I started to think about intention quite a lot in, in the context of using these medications. You know, where before the, the, the general intention was to, you know, manifest the psyche, which of course psychedelics, uh, that's what, that's what uh, they mean. Um, my ayahuasca experience was a lot more pointed and um, I went so far as to crystallize the intentions that I had prior to that um, experience. And so that experience uh, really illuminated for me how, uh, you know, the architecture of set and setting, uh, which I think we're still discovering and, but how important that is in, in terms of the use of these medicines. Did that, were you already in a place where you were looking 
to be a psychedelic activist or did you have to, did you travel some more, some more before you got there? Well, so um, from, let's see, uh, from my experiences with um, ayahuasca, I ended up going to a uh, um, conference that was extremely uh, influential for me, which was a psychedemia conference held at UPenn. And that's where I really met the community. Before that, I was um, studying psychedelics on my own. I mean, I had some affiliations with uh, MAPS and Dance Safe, the, you know, in the, the local chapters around me. And, you know, I had, uh, um, you know, I had been at a Dance Safe table and, you know, I did some, uh, some networking in the MAPS community. Um, but I hadn't uh, really broken through in terms of wanting to actively join the psychedelic world until that conference and, um, at UPenn. And so from there, uh, I ended up going to another conference, Horizons. And at Horizons, that's where I met my co-founders in Symposia. And we, um, you know, the rest is history. But, you know, prior to that, um, I had uh, really done a lot of uh, I would say kind of armchair advocacy around um, telling people about psychedelics, spreading the message, and, you know, uh, generating awareness, uh, <laughs> turning people on <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, doing a lot of writing and, and thinking generally about, about the medications. So were you, were you savvy around public policy and, and the legality of these things even before that? Sorry, I'm waiting for my dogs to stop barking. Apologies. That's all right. Um, so, you know, part of um, part of my research into psychedelics was um, really about psychedelic uh, drug policy. But I would say that you know the um, the texts, so to speak, were were not mainstream even for you know drug policy advocacy. I mean, things like, uh, you know, some of Eric Davis's essays and what I would find on Arrowhead, um, things that were being generated in the community. Uh, that's really what drove my interest around psychedelic policy and my, my knowledge base. Um, you know, I was aware of Mark Kleiman's work and, and some other uh, people in the, uh, you know, who were writing about drug policy. And I was aware of the Drug Policy Alliance, but, um, it wasn't uh, really, you know, at, at the top of my uh, priority list. It was, I was more interested in reading experience reports, reading about plant medicines, reading about drugs. Um, uh, I, but I, you know, I knew enough about drug policy, obviously, to uh, know the dangers of what I <laughs> was doing. Yeah. Uh, and what was, what was the, what was the, the, the spark idea behind Symposia with you and your co-founders? What, what did you guys decide you wanted to do out of the gate? So uh, it's a fascinating story. Um, uh, so we went to Horizons and, um, you know, we all individually had gone to Horizons, which is actually where I met Kyle Bowler and uh, Jill Moore. Okay. And I remember the day that um, Kyle uh, decided that he was going to, I think start or the beginnings of psychedelics today. And when it was the same day that, that we decided we were going to start symposia, huh. but it, it started when um, Dennis McKenna, who was giving a talk at horizons uh, um, ended up speaking to me about his book. And um, I suggested that I could help him in Boston with uh, spreading awareness and about, you know, promoting it. And, his book uh, was um, the, the, what is it, the, the brother, anyway, the book about Terrence, I'm, unfortunately, I can't think of the name right now, but good book. So uh, we discussed the best way to maybe do a book tour for him. And uh, that ended up turning into our first conference, which is the symposium. Uh, and um, Brian uh, Norman Viveros and uh, my other partner at the time, 
were at Amherst studying plant science. So they had access to that campus. And uh, so we teamed up and decided that we were going to be putting that conference on there. But the, uh, you know, the, it, the whole thing necessitated an infrastructure that we had to build, right? We had to build a website. We ended up having to build a brand. We had to, you know, there, it was this simple idea. Hey, let's let's put on a conference and Dennis can headline. But it it became much, much bigger very quickly. And then after our second conference at Amherst, um, we ended up uh, having, you know, an online magazine type presence. Uh, and it just kind of snowballed from there. It sounds like your timing was like super auspicious. It really felt like a zeitgeist at that time, you know, yeah. like it, uh, it, it felt very special. It just, it felt like uh, that was when, you know, this industry that we're seeing now uh, really started to be, be born. Um, that, that was really the, the seeding of it. Um, and, you know, I, I was very involved in, in, in aware of what was happening going back, you know, in, even in the mid to late nineties with what was happening in the psychedelic scene. But it was uh, then that I decided uh, that uh, I really love this thing called the psychedelic community, which I think at this point is uh, it's, it, it's become so large and so diffuse that it's, it's hard to even differentiate it from anything else. So, uh, but at that point, you know, it, it was still like the secret nobody was really talking about psychedelics. Uh, you know, there, there were, there were article after article about the benefits of them coming out in major mainstream uh, publications, but it was still like this, this best kept secret that uh, dedicated groups of people who weren't chasing money and who never thought that this was ever going to amount necessarily to, to anything uh, uh, with respect to, mainstream medications per se, uh, were just doing because they were passionate about it. Um, so, you know, all of the hours that we volunteered and everything else, it was all a labor of love that we were doing while we were doing, you know, other things. And uh, I think that's what made it really great, you know, because it, it was, uh, it was really people that were driven by, by passion and, um, you know, by, by their positive experiences and by their desire to help other people. And it sounds like you were hitting it in such a way that the, the community that formed around you immediately was pretty high caliber. I mean, these, not, I, you know, for lack of a better term, meaning that they were experienced with research backgrounds, interdisciplinary, um, I mean, just, just the fact that it starts with Dennis McKenna's speaks volumes. So is that more well, or less true? Yeah. Say that again? Is that more or less true that you, it was almost, you were almost immediately surrounded by kind of the who's who of the community? Well, yeah, um, that is true. And it was at a time when um, it was relatively easy to, you know, to, to, to do that because it was still this best kept secret. Yeah, and um, you know, for for me, I I had come out of uh, you know a, 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 one of the leading uh, science drug labs in in the world, and so um, you know, meeting with top scientists and uh, it was just an everyday thing for me. I didn't see it as you know, I didn't have like a, uh, trying to think of the polite word for it. I wasn't. I wasn't obsessed with celebrity. I, yeah. I, I, I the, the word I was thinking of was star effing. I, I yeah. wasn't a star, yeah. a star effer. No, but, you didn't, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that that, that probably also, uh, you know, also helped. Um, you know, I, I just, I had a vision for this and uh, I, um, you know, I thought that uh, I could add something of value. And uh, so that really influenced how, we, um, you know, how fast we put this together and who we thought we could get. And do you feel like you occupy a kind of a, um, a Hermes role where you are, because you are conversant in hard science, 
lab science, but also esotericism and the 60s and consciousness studies and so on and so forth. Could you translate things for some people? Yeah, I, I think that that's ultimately, you know, where uh, my value has been. Um, you know, I, I'm, for lack of a better, less pretentious word, I, I suppose I'm a visionary. Uh, and that's what Chief Innovation Officer is, is all about. My, this is my title. Um, it's, it's always Chief Innovation or it's Chief Visionary. And it's, uh, it's funny, I, I'll have an idea that um, is just, uh, could be crazy, could not be. And um, I present that to, you know, hardcore scientists. We talk it through and uh, we, we make something around it. And so I would say um, rather than uh, a translator almost, I, I, I sort of have visions that become translated into science. Right. Um, I, I, I know enough about the science where I can, I can communicate it. I've, I've lectured and whatnot, but um, I would say that really um, I'm, I'm an inventor at heart and uh, a creator. And so I, I channel, um, yeah, I channel the, the same uh, stuff that is behind songwriting and writing poetry, I think, into what I do with psychedelics. It's fascinating. Um, and has thing, have things evolved um, in the larger psychedelic world as you anticipated so they would, or have they surprised you? Um, well, so I also came out of the cannabis world, don't forget. And so I, I saw, I saw the evolution of the cannabis industry, you know, from uh, a uh, really interesting perspective where um, I was, you know, right in the, the bosom of uh, uh, really cutting edge science around cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system um, that was federally funded by uh, NIDA which wow. um, only funded projects for a long time that, uh, and I think still that, uh, you know, uh, were about the abuse of these uh, compounds. And, um, you know, so I saw the birth of the cannabinoid industry from kind of an interesting place. And I remember when I went to my first meeting about the cannabis industry in Boston, and this is before I founded a cannabis company out here, um, I, uh, was really kind of surprised that, uh, a lot of the folks that were, um, advocating, uh, you know, the, the policy changes in the industry around, uh, cannabis really didn't know all that much about the science and they, um, hardly knew much about the, the, the history. They just knew that, you know, this stuff was, uh, they enjoyed it and people did it and it should be legal, which, you know, Hey, that that's, that's good enough, I think. But I saw that uh, there was a need for um, somebody who knew the science as well as uh, some of the policy aspects of it. And um, I think that the same is true with, with psychedelics. I, I think that you have a lot of companies that are sort of popping up and around this idea of, Hey, let's, make money off of the new hottest thing. And um, they, uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of times they lack the, uh, the background and the, uh, you know, the, the legacy, if you will, uh, around uh, having a relationship with these medicines. And be because of that, what gets lost in translation, I think in, in this industry sometimes is um, user experience, uh, as in, Hey, you know, it's, it, it's okay that we get to put these drugs into humans, but I mean, you need to have sort of a, a background in what these things are all about in order to do it in a way that's going to be, you know, most advantageous. And there's also, I think a sense of, uh, in some circles in the psychedelics industry, a sense that, um, you know, psychedelics are starting somehow now as if you know the last you know 90 years or, or thousands of years of of use of psychedelics uh, don't exist and 
they're just now starting because, you know, somebody is, you know, starting a publicly traded company. So I, I think that um, I'm not really surprised, but uh, I should say that, um, you know, I think, I think that some, some of the companies that are involved in, uh, in this space, uh, you know, really lack the kind of perspectives that I think are, are valuable that, and that I value. And would you say that's the majority of companies in the space? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of most of these companies are started by people that are just discovering that psychedelics are something interesting because they can make money. Right. Venture capitalist sorts. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I think what I think what becomes uh, unfortunate is when um, those people start to dictate standards and norms and um, uh, start to sort of be the thought leaders. Uh, just simply because they've raised money around it. And they, they lack, um, in a lot of cases, the, the, you know, the background and, uh, as I said, the relationships with, with these medicines and with, uh, you know, a history of use. And um, they, they, weren't, they weren't spending hundreds of hours volunteering uh, in educating people around the world. Right. about psychedelic science they weren't risking their freedom and uh you know to um you know to help people when it was when it was illegal you know they they weren't uh supporting people who were imprisoned you know for for doing just that you know they they came in when uh it was you know a, a, an obvious way to make money yeah, and, uh, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong about that, but I think um, it's unfortunate when there's a uh, a lack of perspective. I suppose. So I guess that would, I guess I know the answer to my next question. A lot of these folks, uh, their work is not informed by things like ethnobotany and anthropology and religious studies. That I mean, there's people in the field, obviously, who are informed, but the new the new sort of venture capitalist types aren't. I think that that's safe to say, um, and and it, it you know it, I don't think that that means that they wouldn't want to be informed or they're not interested in it, but um, I think that they're in in most cases they're interested from a business perspective. Sure. And and you know to be fair, so am I, but. Um, I think that the fact that uh, my relationship with the subject matter spans now, you know, more than two decades and um, was driven really by a passion and an interest right. as opposed to, uh, you know, to, to, to business instincts. Um, it's definitely, a, uh, it, I think it definitely gives us an advantage as a company to have that. And, and, you know, we have people on the team that aren't that way. So I'm not saying everybody has to be that way, but um, I, you know, I think having, uh, you know, having deep seated interests and respect and uh, knowledge about the subject matter in a company is important, whether everybody has that or not. I, I uh, you know, I don't think everybody needs to have that necessarily, but I feel like that needs to be sort of represented in the ethos of, of a company um, just because it's important when you're approaching patients, you know? Sure. Well, so is there, is there a, a respect for these substances, meaning their, their potential volatility? Uh, is that acknowledged or, or is it really tracking marijuana or cannabis closely? Um, you know, I think in, in a lot of cases, uh, when you say volatility, I suppose the way that I'm reading that is um, nuance. I don't know if. Uh, yeah, I what, think what you... by the potential of, of, a, of a bad psychological experience yeah. in the hands of somebody who's uh, naive or inexperienced or the provider who is naive or inexperienced. You know, I, I think that the line can be drawn between um, people who are. Uh, 
seeing dollar signs with psychedelics and who are committed to those dollar signs versus um, people and companies that are uh, committed to a good patient outcome. And that's really kind of where I think the, the line is drawn. Uh, it's, it's where is the focus? It's possible to, um, to be driven in the business case towards a good patient outcome and have that be the primary focus, which I think is what I like about the company that, uh, you know, that I'm with now. Um, uh, but um, I think it's easy to be uh, um, sort of uh, focused on the money and the, the money focus is what is causing people to focus on the hype and may, it may be at the detriment of the potential adverse events that could come in the future and reverse the hype cycle. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, that's, that's a really great and important question is, is, well, if we have this honeymoon period that's extended around psychedelics where uh, they're being kind of positioned as panacea within themselves because of some good data, and that's communicated to the masses, it leaves us susceptible and vulnerable to the, the fact that there can be adverse events and that those adverse events are are mitigated very much by the set and setting, which really needs to be part, I think, of this new paradigm of health. We need to be looking past medications as, as just a, um, a, a, a cure-all or a treatment in and of themselves and um, looking instead at how these drugs especially are part of a greater context of, of health. And specifically taking your own health into your own hands and right. taking responsibility. That might be something new for pharma. Yeah, I mean, one could only hope. Uh, I got to say that, you know, just this week in my field, I found myself saying, you know, quality of services and outcomes have become so divorced from making money that it almost looks like having integrity is perceived to be costly. Mm. And, you know, I, I could see something comparable happening. You know, just cutting corners to make as much money as possible and then always having um, your eye on how well the competitors are doing and who's getting market share and all that usual crap. Mm. Um, so definitely something to think about. Yeah, uh, I, I'm a believer in the creative will to um, address whatever we, we want to address. So if we want to address, um, you know, patient outcomes in a way that, that focuses on patient outcomes and incorporates cost savings together, I, I feel like there's, there's a way to do that. Um, so I, I'm not opposed to uh, cost cutting and using cost cutting as a uh, as one guide, but it you know ultimately the the patient outcome has to be the focus. So creating sort of a a, a view where you're synthesizing the cost cutting um, you know rubric with uh, patient outcome, um, I, I think is doable. So I don't think that those two are necessarily at, at odds. Uh, but what I will say is that it takes a lot of creativity and it takes um, uh, the need to be aware and conscious of, of the, uh, sometimes the tension between those and the possibility that they could be mitigating each other if you don't pay a lot of attention to it. Yeah, and I think it means that you have to be willing to not go the way the Joneses go, you know, to step apart from the herd. Um, well, there's some people like me that just, uh, we've never been able to be part of the herd. <laughs> <laughs> Which is doesn't sound like it, Brett. 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I've, I've had a lot of envy for the herd over the years, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, but, um, you know, you, it, it's hard to believe how many people came out of the woodwork to congratulate me on uh, my company being acquired, who used to think that uh, I was crazy because I took LSD or that all of this drug, <laughs> all of this drug shit was just ruining my life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I bet. Sort of my, my parents' pers perspective. Um, but yeah, in, in all seriousness, um, you know, you're, you're going to have uh, companies, I think, that um, are uh, more aware and more focused and more informed than others. And then you'll have companies that um, they maybe they lack, uh, they lack that. And so they decide that they're going to correct it by bringing in you know, people who are trusted advisors who can, who can really help them with that. And then of course you'll have companies that uh, they don't know what they don't know and they, they really don't care. Yeah. So you'll, you'll have, you'll have good, bad and ugly. Yeah. And um, I'm sure that you're also going to have a backlash at some point to all of the, the rosy eyed stuff about psychedelics. I'm, I'm sure that that's coming. And um, there's not a whole lot we can do except be honest every turn. Um, and, and make sure that our integrity aligns with, uh, you know, our ability to make money. I mean, that, that is ultimately what good business is about. You know, it's, it's about, uh, preparing for, you know, certain inevitabilities that can, you know, threaten your business. And, and there's nothing like that in pharma greater than adverse events. So everybody has, and, you know, a duty and obligation to the patients, to their shareholders, and, you know, ultimately to themselves to uh, prepare for uh, uh, any of those potential outcomes and, and try to uh, just um, do as, as, as good work as possible. In the case of psychedelics, I, I think that that really is about being aware of the role that set and setting plays. You know, and I've had some conversations that have blown my mind because um, it just, it, it seemed like the people that were proposing different kinds of tools or, uh, you know, treatments or, or whatever, literally just had no idea what tripping was like. They, they had no concept of patient experience. Um, you know, I, I, I wish I could kind of speak in, in detail to some of these things, but it, it, sometimes it's mind blowing. You know, like, uh, imagine, you know, imagine if somebody's like, oh, well, you know, why don't we just put them in an fMRI the whole time? And, you know, <laughs> that, and that, that way we can, you know, because there's fMRI research going on. It's like, uh, yeah, but, you know, that, that might not be the best <laughs> outcome for the patients. Well, why? Uh, you know, psilocybin has been shown to reduce depression. It's like, yeah, but, you know, not by itself, right? Right. So th there's some basic, what we call, psychedelics 101 stuff that um <laughs> i'm i'm floored sometimes when it seems like uh these companies and and you know people in them just have no idea about them that and I, sometimes i'm very shocked by that well that kind of brings me there's two kind of sets of questions i want to ask before we wrap up and and one of them is from where you're sitting what are the most exciting um, medical potentialities for these substances? Or can you speak to the, the conditions and to the substances? Well, I can, I can tell you this, uh, because some of what you're asking, I think, would um, constitute me uh, maybe going a little too far into um, what I'm, what I'm doing, which would not be good for my company, but, um, I can, I can say from my personal experience, um, I just started therapy after about 20 something years of not having a therapist and, um, the breakthroughs that I've had in therapy are, uh, really amazing. And I haven't been tripping during that time. Um, and, uh, what it's reminded me of is that, um, you know, 
you need you need to be having a process where you're analyzing yourself and your behaviors on an ongoing basis in order to have a progressive um, evolution in terms of of healing um, and and self care. And without that, um, the the psychedelic risks being a, 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 a blip on the radar screen. Granted, it's a high blip, but um, it, it's, it's a blip nonetheless. And while, um, you know, controlled uh, um, psychedelic therapy sessions with psilocybin, et cetera, are associated with long-term efficacy. And, and while certainly you can have, you know, one experience where you don't want to smoke nicotine again or uh where maybe you you know you you don't have uh treatment resistant depression for for nine months and while those, that phenomena definitely happens i think it's a mistake to focus on this uh what we call a one and done type of uh approach and i think the most destructive potential about the one and done approach is that it causes people to associate uh, their um, ability to heal with, with that drug. I mean, it's, it's very similar to, I think, what you see with, you know, with addiction in your work, right? It's like you, when you, when you use uh, certain drugs, um, suddenly they, they unlock something in you that you think is, um, you know, your true self. I, I can tell you that, uh, probably shouldn't tell you, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that um, I smoked methamphetamine one time in my life. I was 13. I was at a friend's house and I uh, took a hit. And uh, I can remember like about an hour later thinking, wow, this is who I really am. This, <laughs> this, is, who, this is who I'm supposed to be. And I knew that I could never do that again. <laughs> no, good. And, um, and so I never did. Uh, but, you know, what, what that kind of suggests to me is that sometimes I think psychedelics run the risk of um, putting you into a very clear place, but um, making you dependent on, on that place uh, to have, uh, you know, that breakthrough in the future, as opposed to having that breakthrough um, catalyze, uh, you know, an, an evolution of, of uh, modifications to behavior and to thought that lead to a healthy mental life. Um, so I, I think that the therapy component and the integration component are absolutely crucial to the potential of these medications. And to focus just on the drug component I think is, is potentially dangerous. It's a, it's a missed opportunity, uh, but it's, it's also potentially dangerous because you're making people associate, um, in some cases, uh, their periods of well-being with the drug as opposed to um, giving them the tools to unlock uh, their own healing and you know, with, with therapy and having the drug be one of those tools, albeit it's an important tool, but it's just one of them. So I'm really interested in um, regiments uh, of treatment that uh, incorporate um, the therapy, incorporate the drug and incorporate technology in a way to create a context where we are encouraging people to take the reins over their own mental health and, and their own health. And ultimately, what you know, the greatest potential of these medicines to me is in uh, reminding people that they have power, and that they have power over uh, over their perception. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love that answer because being in the addiction field, too often I see the attitude of you know, a 10 year heroin habit is gonna miraculously evaporate in an iboga session and you're gonna walk away, you know, all good. So the chop wood, carry water thing is, it's really, 
It's an important message, integration. The other question I have for you is if, you know, we're going to have listeners who are uh, really intrigued by this. Some of them are, you know, it's not their wheelhouse at all. Uh, there's other people that have probably been around it for a bit and are still a little bit, you know, quizzical about where to go. What kind of resources would you send somebody to look at? Meaning books, websites, thinkers. Who do you think the people are that can really, um, can provide the right kind of context for the curious? Mm. You know, that's, that's a great question and I should have a ready answer, but I got to tell you that um, I feel conflicted about how I answer that because, you know, what I would do and what I did, what I have done and what has um, really influenced my whole approach to this was I started with Arrowid looking at experience reports and on arrowid.org you have a, a library of these experience reports um, that break down per substance and you can literally search for the substance and then read tens of whatever experience reports about each substance and you see the good experiences you see the bad experiences you see the train wrecks and all of it is anecdotal, but what you end up getting from that, I think, is a really balanced uh, take on on what people have experienced. And um, that way, you're not just um, trusting in an expert, quote unquote, to tell you, you know, what should be or what is based on statistical significance in some of these studies. Um, there are studies and there are peer-reviewed articles and uh, science-minded people in your audience, you know, may well go on PubMed and start pouring over the papers and the studies. And, uh, and I think all of that is interesting and fascinating. But um, to me, uh, maybe the best place to start is in these experience reports. And just hearing from people that, that have had uh, great experiences and terrible experiences and middling experiences. And uh, I, I'll tell you that to me, it, it, that's the most fascinating thing to do. Uh, at Symposia, you know, we produced for a long time these psychedelic stories events where people would uh, get on the mic and uh, talk about experiences that they had. And that was really powerful as well. And I think some of those might still be available online. Um, so that's kind of my, my unorthodox answer uh, to you. Um, you know, there are a lot of talking heads out there, some, some excellent, uh, some not so good, who uh, I think can go through the basics of, uh, you know, the pharmacology and how it's, uh, how it's given in, in, a, in a clinic, et cetera. But um, nothing hits me quite like, reading people's experiences some of them are really incredible and mind-blowing and um moving yeah well for the audience um arrowid is e-r-r-o-w-i-d it one r in there e-r-o-w-i-d oh it is well, thank you for yeah. yeah no no worries <laughs> i would have figured it out well, Brett, this has been really good. I suspect this might be the beginning of several conversations as this whole thing evolves. Um, is there anything you want to leave the audience with before we call it night? Well, thanks for putting up with uh, all of my stumbling. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, so uh, I, I appreciate their their patience. Um, you know, th this this whole uh, psychedelic uh, thing is is really about um, ultimately taking control. That's, that's what I think. It's, it's about us taking control of ourselves. And uh, I think that that's the most exciting thing that we can learn uh, about these medicines. It's, it's that we have amazing power internally to uh, change our situation for the better. Well, that is a radical message that we definitely need <laughs> right now.
All right, my friend. Thanks so much, Pierce. Thank you. Be well. You too. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.